prize. I've already got the prize. The prize is the pleasure of finding a thing out. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You realize when you know how to think, it empowers you far beyond those who know only what to think. We're going. We're going. All right, we're live. Perfect. All right, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Griffins and Gluons. I'm your host, Elliot, and today we are continuing with our saga of talking black holes, astrophysics, and gravity with one of our guests and one of our newest members of our faculty, Dr. Daniel Siegel. Uh, Dr. Siegel holds a diploma in physics from the University of Freiburg and a PhD from the Max Planck Institute for Gravitational Physics in conjunction with the University of Potsdam in Germany. From 2015 to 2019, he performed postdoctoral research at the University of Columbia, where he was the recipient of the NASA Einstein Fellowship. Currently, he's an associate faculty at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and an associate professor here at the University of Guelph, conducts research in gravitational, nuclear, and high-energy astrophysics, along with many other interests that we'll be discussing today. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Elliot. Well, uh, thanks so much for the kind introduction, and uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's uh, really great to be on your podcast. I had to I had to stutter for a second because it's quite the resume. But I, I I first like congratulations on your placement as a NASA Einstein Fellow. Like that title kind of hits every buzzword in the in in the science community. That NASA Einstein smashed together. That's like it's like an illustrious <laughs> title, kind of like uh, King of Kings or something like that. But uh, what right. uh, what what is what, what is the fellowship? How, what does it constitute, and and how did you receive it? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So it's it's one of the of the really nice uh, fellowships that has been established by NASA, essentially to establish uh, postdoctoral research, uh, sort of at the forefront of, of astronomy and astrophysics, uh, both uh, in sort of in the theoretical part. Um, so it supports uh, theorists as well as observers, um, and it's really meant to. Uh, uh, to sort of foster um, science in all sort of the core um, uh, regions of, of NASA astrophysics and to essentially support the science missions of, of uh, some of the NASA satellites and, and some of the big NASA missions. So it's, it's really a fantastic program for, for postdocs um, in that, um, first of all, um, it's, it's a nice fellowship that uh, provides you with a lot of freedom to essentially pursue your uh, scientific uh, uh, research interests in whatever way you, you where you want to take them um, so it gives you maximum freedom uh, on the scientific level um, you're you know affiliated you can take it essentially to um, to an institution of your choice and then sort of uh, do research there and collaborate with uh, faculty and and, and, and other uh, postdocs there so it's, it's a really great chance and um, I'm really happy that this program actually uh, exists. And I couldn't help but notice that um, talking about how you're saying that you can go from different institutions and pick the, the research that you want, right. uh, that, that you had that you have experience at the Max Planck Institute for uh, Gravitational Physics. Um, and believe it or not, I actually had the privilege of visiting the Max Planck Institute for Plasma Physics. Oh, nice. In, 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 in Gar... Ga- Ga- oh, my gosh. I'm going to say it wrong. Gashing. Gashing. Yeah. Okay, there you go. 
um, in, in, in Munich a while back. And I was kind of, I was blown away of how organized, of how, of how many fields the Max Planck Institute would cover, um, like everything from extraterrestrial, uh, you know, sciences to quantum optics and so on. Uh, I just wanted to know how, how, how was your time there? You know, what, what kind of research did you perform? Yeah, um, so I started as a as a PhD student back then um, at the Max Planck Institute for Gravitational Physics, and as you mentioned, there's so many Max Planck institutes, <laughs> yeah, spreading um, um, all over Germany, but uh, um, but also all over the sciences. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, um, there are uh, Max Planck institutes in the humanities, even and uh, social sciences. Uh, there are Max Planck institutes in, in mathematics, in you know physics, chemistry, biology, um, life sciences, you know, you name it. Um, and um, so I was really attracted by you know gravitational physics as a as a student. Um, I I love to study uh, GR general relativity, and I was interested in astronomy. And I thought you know this is the perfect place to bring all of this together and and study um, gravitational waves and you know uh, compact objects like neutron stars and black holes. And so I was really interested in that. And so that essentially what brought me to uh, to the Max Planck Institute back then. And so I started um, after receiving my master's degree. Um, um, essentially, it's it's uh, it's still um, an equivalent uh, degree. It's the old uh, German diploma degree. Um, so after that, I moved to the Max Planck Institute, um, and I started studying um, neutron stars and and, and black holes uh, numerically. So uh, we we try to solve Einstein's equations and you know all sorts of other um, important evolution equations of such systems on huge supercomputers, and we were lucky to have one of these big supercomputers in actually in the basement of the of the institute um and uh so uh we made use of it um uh, quite a lot um simulating collisions you know of neutron stars and, and black holes and some of the associated astrophysical phenomena um maybe you've heard about uh, gamma ray bursts um or kilonovae and um, um, so, so all sorts of astrophysical phenomena uh, that happen in conjunction with these um, cosmic collisions, and so that's essentially what what I what I studied at the um, or what I started to study um, at the Max Planck, and which I then took on to the NASA Einstein Fellowship um, in uh, at the Columbia University in in New York afterwards as a as a postdoc. Very cool, very cool, um, and I guess sort of transitioning now. On a more general note, we were talking with uh, with with Eric, Doctor Eric Poisson. He prefers mm -hmm. Eric. I don't know. I don't, do you prefer Daniel or 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 Dr. Yeah, Daniel's fine. Yeah, yeah, of course. Daniel's yeah, fine. Daniel. Okay, okay. Yeah, Daniel's great. Yeah. I, I know we, we had this whole this like talk about how the doctor thing kind of gets old after a while and you feel kind of right, like, right. like your father <laughs> yeah. or something like that. But uh, um, right. you you both work in the same sort of group research group, the gravitation group. Um, yes. I just wanted to know sort of what what are, you, what are you doing here now at the university and uh sort of background on your research and and your contributions to the group so yeah um so as as you mentioned our our um, um astrophysics and gravitation group spans uh, a range of uh sort of uh, research interests um on the one hand there's uh, obviously gravitation fundamental problems in gravitation and general relativity and uh, theories beyond um, and so um, um, I guess you have talked a lot about this with uh, with um, Eric uh, Poisson when he was on, on the podcast. Essentially, what, what I bring to, to the group is um, uh, sort of a little more, the potentially a little more the, the astrophysics uh, realm um, in terms of, especially in terms of numerical simulations, 
Um, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, I uh, started uh, my PhD in sort of this numerical field of uh, supercomputer simulations, um, which is also what I bring here uh, to Guelph, to the department and to, uh, to the group. Um, so we're uh, doing sort of large scale uh, supercomputer simulations where uh, we still look <laughs> at collisions of neutron stars and, and black holes and, uh, you know, all the phenomena that, that go with them. There's a huge interest these days in such phenomena uh, due to the detections of gravitational waves uh, from such collisions uh, that uh, big interferom uh, interferometric detectors uh, are currently doing. Um, you may have heard about LIGO and uh, Virgo um, and CAGRA. So these are um, huge sort of uh, multi-kilometer arm uh, Michelson interferometers that detect gravitational waves these days. And uh, we've seen a Nobel Prize just a few years ago. And so it's, it's really a field that is, that is booming and that uh, nicely brings together sort of all the interests that, that all the scientific interests that I, that I have for my own, but uh, um, that sort of at large also brings together um, um, many different fields from astronomy, um, astrophysics, and, uh, you know, basic physics like gravitation, um, uh, but also nuclear physics. It turns out that some of these uh, collisions um, um, also have important consequences for, for nuclear physics. So it, it's a really multidisciplinary um, a field that is really um, that is really booming right now. Um, and so that's what I'm what I'm excited about. And, and was that one of your main decisions to sort of switch from you know doing research in Germany to kind of come to Canada? You you have, you have experience in sort of these high level institutions in, in Europe and the United States and. Just wanted to know what kind of influenced your decision to come to, you know, the Waterloo Guelph region. Yeah, that, that is a, that is actually a great question. So, I mean, um, I, I got a very nice job offer, <laughs> and that was uh, obviously the the first uh, the first reason. So, I I, um, I was very lucky to to receive um, a really nice job offer from Guelph um, and and Perimeter, um, a joint uh, joint offer. And I was very excited to come here because of you know some of the people that some of the really great people um, and collaborators that are, that are here. Uh, we already mentioned Eric Poisson, um, who's a world-leading expert on you know fundamental uh, problems in GR. And um, at the on the other hand, there's uh, we have there's a great group that uh, we have at Perimeter Institute um, working um, in my field um, of numerical simulations um, pertaining to you know. Uh, neutron stars and black holes like Louis Lehner and William East and and um, and Juan Yang, who is also a joint faculty with with Guelph. So I was really excited to to have this opportunity to to come here and to sort of you know be embedded in 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 this group. And um, so that was a very attractive offer, um, I, I must say. And congratulations! I, I understand you 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 signed on to the faculty in twenty nineteen. Is that correct? Oh, that's uh, right. Yes, I, I arrived in like in May uh, 2019. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and uh, you know uh, bringing your 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 knowledge and expertise to, to this booming field, especially at our university. It's it's very exciting. And sure. thank you uh, so I wanna, much. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to shift now into a more serious note. I want to talk uh, actually about one of your papers um, mm -hmm. that you authored called "The First Observed Neutron Star Merger and Its Kilonova." Uh, which is about a neutron star called GW one, sorry GW one seven zero eight one seven. You need better names for these things. You gotta, right. you gotta find better. <laughs> yeah, uh, GW one. Right. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and uh, th that was observed by LIGO and Virgo in, I, th I think, either 2017 or 2019. It, it, could you give me a correction on that? When was, yes. when was it observed? It, it was observed actually in, in 2017. Uh, and this is like roughly how these numbers come about. So uh, the, right. the first two digits uh, tell you the, um, uh, the year and then um, the month and then again uh, the day, uh, the day in, in that month. So this is how right. these crazy numbers come about. And GW just means it's a gravitational wave event. Um, and uh, so this okay, is really enough. sort of, um, you know, f physicists uh, mimicking the uh, conventions in astronomy. So uh, you, you may have heard like in, in astronomy, there's, you know, if there's um, like a big collaboration that has a big telescope or, you know, some instrument that takes, uh, that makes observations of transient or, or whatever, then usually they get called um, in a certain way where, you know, they, they assign an acronym to a certain event, um, which is usually, which usually contains, contains somehow the date and then, you know, a few um, additional digits. And this is kind of establishing here a, a similar convention as is, 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 is very common in, in astronomy. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, they are hard to pronounce and, um, and, and hard to remember. Um, although I, I do remember this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you do. You did, in fact, write a paper on it. So um, you talk yeah. about uh, Kilanova emission. And uh, it's just like we talked about earlier, this is a great segue. And uh, this sort of Kilanova emission from which I, from, sorry, from what I understand, uh, comes from the sort of collision of two binary bodies, like a black hole and a neutron star, two neutron stars, something like that. Um, and you sort of allude to um, using these kilonova emissions to find possible astrophysical sites for nucleosynthesis. Um, and I just wanted to know, does that mean that you're using kilonova emission to trace the point in to which nucleosynthesis occurred or to where the, the collision occurred? So how, how does that... Uh, how does that? How, how does tracing back the emission sort of help you in that in that sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, essentially, what happens in these collisions? So, uh, and that could be these, as you mentioned, these binary objects. Um, so, a binary system uh, consisting of either one neutron star and a black hole, or two neutron stars. Um, so if, if those so if, if, if in a binary system you have two of such compact objects, they inspiral each other, and in doing so they emit gravitational waves, uh, and this is how we detect them in the first place, um, especially when they uh, when they're close to merger, so uh, ultimately before they before they collide, um, in the last few milliseconds, so they uh, inspiral each other at you know kilohertz frequencies um, almost, um, so um, th that is very fast. Um, and so as they collide, um, some of this debris material gets ejected into space, uh, meaning material from the neutron star um, that gets, you know, tidally uh, through tidal forces or, um, or the actual collision it itself um, uh, may get unbound and ejected into, into space. And uh, since this material is from a neutron star, so as in the name suggests, right, it is mo made mostly out of neutrons. Um, so this is sort of the way you can you can think about this, right? Um, so there's essentially a bunch of neutrons that uh, that you know if you eject um, into into space, um, and and those are very dense. So it's it's like it's like ripping off you know a part of a giant macroscopic atomic nucleus, right? 
Um, like these neutron stars are essentially something like macroscopic um, atomic nuclei, if you want. Um, and so you, uh, you essentially rip off some material of that and, and throw it into space. It is incredibly dense. It is, um, you know, close to uh, nuclear saturation density uh, sometimes. And what happens is if, if, if that material then um, sort of expands and, and decompresses as it's sort of moving into the interstellar medium, um, it starts to form uh, nuclei. So out of these individual nucleons, um, so mostly neutrons, but also you have some protons in there, these neutrons and protons recombine into alpha particles and then heavier nuclei. And at some point, um, you know, you can you can do that. So this, these are essentially like fusion reactions. Um, you can you can build up such light nuclei up to iron, where essentially all the, the nuclear binding energy is, is more or less exhausted. Um, but then since you, you started off with so many free neutrons, um, you can, you'll eventually have to capture more neutrons onto these uh, iron seed nuclei. And so this is what we call the R process. Um, so you capture free neutrons onto seed particles to form very, very heavy atomic nuclei. Um, and they are unstable. They, are, uh, they will decay uh, through you know, various um, radioactive processes like beta decay, uh, but also alpha decay and nuclear fission. So there's, there's all sorts of things involved here. Um, and as they, as they do this, they release a lot of binding energy. So nuclear binding energy that heats up the material. So it, it sort of the, the, the outflow heats, heats itself. Um, and that leads to black body radiation. And this is the kilonova uh, that you mentioned, right? So this is uh, this black body emission or quasi black body emission that we see that is directly produced uh, by these nuclear physical, so by these nuclear reactions. Uh, this is what astronomers can actually see in their telescopes. And I, I find that very fascinating. Um, so you can essentially directly see the imprint of the production of heavy nuclei somewhere out there in the universe. Um, um, and so this is what we've seen, what we were able to see for the first time in this GW170817, uh, this event with this uh, crazy name. Um, and so this was a very exciting uh, moment um, uh, in, I would say, astronomy and physics in, in general. The sort of the ejecta that you mentioned, although a lot of it you, you use to measure, are there also some byproducts from the ejecta that sort of interfere with your measurements that, that come out as, as noise and can kind of corrupt your data as well? That is a great question. So in terms of nucleosynthesis, I mean, the, the entire outflow will more or less behave in a similar way. So there's... Um, there's actually different kilonova components that you can think of. So, um, so different. So this ejector can, you know, um, um, this ejector material can be, in, in principle, be composed of, you know, different components. Uh, so some some material that may be, you know, ripped off um, through tidal forces, um, even during the the last bit of the spiral phase um, of these these two compact objects. Um, but then you can also have material being ejected after the collision by other processes. And this is something that we were talking about uh, in, in the paper a lot that, that you mentioned. Um, and so, so these different ejector components can have different properties. Um, and so depending on those properties, um, sort of mostly uh, it's the, the ratio of free neutrons to protons, uh, so the so-called composition. Uh, so depending on the composition, you can have different transients. Uh, so meaning different kilonova uh, components. And so one kilonova component can be mixed into the other. And so you have to decipher this um, a little bit, but it also helps you probe actually the the uh, merger dynamics of, of, uh, of the system. But 
Um, on, a, on a second note, essentially, there can be also other um, astronomical um, emission that we see from these events that can potentially be confused with such a kilonova signal. Um, and that is the afterglow um, of, uh, of a gamma ray burst. Um, so it turns out that these collisions also give rise to what we call uh, gamma ray bursts or short gamma ray bursts. Um, so that's a phenomenon that's been known in astronomy for several decades now. Um, so these are very ultra short, um, but ultra intense flashes of gamma rays uh, lasting for, you know, about, uh, you know, a second to maybe two seconds. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of variation in, in here. Um, and then usually these flashes are uh, followed up by some what we call afterglow, um, and that's a broadband afterglow, not just in the gamma rays. It, it's 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 really in the X rays, um, and then it extends even down to the radio band. So if you were an astronomer looking, you know, in into the sky in a certain wavelength band, you will you, you would potentially see something. Um, it's it's usually like a power law um, afterglow uh, spectrum that that one can see, and that can be. Um, that can be sort of uh, stronger. That can be stronger than the kilonova signal, for example, or it can be at a, at a similar level. And so one has to to really look into in, in into the details here of the emission to see whether it's actually such an afterglow uh, emission from a gamma ray burst, or whether it's it's a kilonova. And there's different indicators that you can look at to to see um, what the physical nature of of uh, you know of the of the transient really is. And in this event that you mentioned, GW seventeen or eight seventeen, we were so lucky that the kilonova part was much, much brighter than, than the afterglow, which, uh, which was uh, fantastic. So we could actually see all this nuclear physics happening uh, essentially live. Uh, I mean, it happened long ago, but for us, it, it kind of happened live um, in, in, in these observations. And, and like you say in the paper, these, um, these gamma ray bursts are the most luminous uh, phenomena in the universe recorded so far, I guess, or, 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 yes. or, or absolutely. Yes, uh, that is that is correct. So they belong to the class of you know of this broader class of, of gamma ray bursts. Uh, there's these long uh, gamma ray bursts that are associated with other types of astrophysical systems, and then there's the short bursts um, uh, that we think are associated with um, uh, with neutron star collisions or neutron star black hole collisions. And so those are in fact yeah the, the most luminous um, um, sort of phenomena that, that we know of in in the universe so far. Um, yeah. Incredible. I'm, I'm really jealous that you get to study that. That's incredible. Um, but um, I guess sort of on a more serious note, a, a lot of what you say, a lot of what you research, a lot of what you, you do is actually really quite fascinating. But I'm sure, you know, amongst, I, I don't want to say the general public, I think that's insulting, but I'm sure there are people who kind of look at, you know, the fields of astrophysics and gravitation and go, you know, wow, you study big, you know, colossal celestial bodies that are light years and light years away, that doesn't seem to really have any bearing on Earth, you know, why should we be giving you funding when we can be giving it to the condensed matter people who get all the right. funding anyway, but we're not getting there. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, biophysics and, and, and medical right. physics and things like that, things that, that seemingly impact human life and human interaction directly. Right. Um, so, so I guess, not, not to put you on the spot, but what uh, like what would you give sort of the layman terms um, as a as as how astrophysical phenomena studying nuclear synthesis how does this impact us you know our way of life our our origin story that kind of thing 
Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I I get that, that I get that question um, um, a lot actually. Um, um, so, I mean, since we're looking at astrophysics, right? It's it's sort of by construction something that you know don't doesn't happen in our daily lives and on on this planet. So it is by definition out of the realm of everyday life. Um, you would think so, right? Uh, but um, in in this case, um, so if we're looking at you know um, studying kilonovae and the origin of heavy elements, which is you know part of, of uh, certainly part of my research and um, um, and has been essentially my main focus uh, um, essentially over the last couple of years, then it has a very concrete um, meaning actually um, in our daily lives. So um, it's it's been a big question over many many decades. How heavy elements, um, um, you know, the bottom rows of the periodic table, how the universe actually creates these elements, um, and so uh, there are some rare earth metals um, among these, and as the name suggests, they're quite rare. But there, there's other, there's um, sort of other elements as well that we actually know quite well from our daily lives, like gold, silver, platinum, right? So some some people may actually carry some, you know, a ring finger. Um, a ring on their fingers um, um, made out of gold. Um, and so we're really trying to answer the, the question, where does this gold actually come from? Um, so how does the universe actually create um, uh, this gold? And uh, essentially on a similar note, if we look into, um, right now I'm actually staring into a screen uh, talking with you, right? And so um, it turns out that, you know, some of these screens actually need some, some of these rare, uh, rare earth, uh, metals to be to be produced is what actually makes them shiny um, um, and actually function so well. Um, so this is so essentially we're studying really where this stuff comes from. So how the universe actually um, creates these elements. So it, it does have it does have some concrete meaning in 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 our daily lives. Um, uh, I would say it doesn't tell us how we can actually uh, get more of those on Earth, but uh, but it uh, it sort of uh, speaks to this sort of more academic question of uh, you know how all of this came about. That, that, that was going to be my, my next question about, I, I guess, is sort of wishful thinking of, is there sort of an application of trying to, similarly to how nuclear fusion tries to make a downscale high temperature replica of, 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 of you know, solar fusion per se, are, are there any sort of implications in the future that we can kind of replicate nuclear synthesis in a lab or in a basement or anything like that? Or is that just sci-fi sci wishful thinking or anything like that yeah another great question so i um so yes and no um um the the, the problem with um so i think fusion is is a great example because uh we, we are actually able to um to do something like that on, on earth right i mean at least in a downscale version we, we're we're able to essentially do fusion here that is that's roughly similar to some to some of the processes that that happen in in stars actually so out there in the universe so with with the r process and so if you want to create heavier elements um so as i mentioned heavier than iron um and you want to create them through neutron capture then it turns out that these these neutron so the the density of neutrons you need uh to um, to be successful with this process are actually so high that they will not be realizable here on earth um, so unfortunately, this is not not really a process that is um, accessible through labs uh, here on Earth. Nevertheless, 
um, there are big nuclear facilities uh, currently being built and um, and all already existing who are looking into you know measuring properties of such exotic heavy nuclei um, and uh, we'll have a nuclear facility soon um, in in the US actually it's called FRIP uh, facility for rare isotope beams in at Michigan State, uh, not far from here actually, um, geographically speaking, um, and uh, so th that that will be a big nuclear facility which will actually try to measure and to produce some of these um, heavy R process um, um, elements. But this will be through other processes, um, as you know, as they're actually uh, as are actually happening in the kilonova out there. Um, but so, sort of part, some of these nuclei are accessible here, here on Earth. But we'll will not be able to reproduce an an, an actual R process, um, an actual rapid neutron capture process um, here on Earth. That 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 makes a lot of sense. It was just uh, it was just a thought, but but it makes a lot of sense. I, I just yeah. love the fact that uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, the hottest place in our solar system was in northeastern Germany at one point at the Stellarator <laughs> or something like yeah. that. Yes, it was, right. just, it was it was just insane what we've been able to replicate and and, and build at this point. But um, right. um, but but that's wonderful. Thank you for 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 indulging me in there. A little bit of wishful thinking. Oh, sure. um, <laughs> I want to I want to segue into so so I'm very excited about these next sort of three or four questions uh, because mm -hmm. my favorite topic in physics is magnetohydrodynamics. I, I know it's not strictly. Um, sort of cold plasmas or terrestrial plasmas or atmospheric, but you do do work on general relativistic magnetohydrodynamic simulations, correct? That is correct, yeah. So I want to kind of ask you about your work on studying accretion disks, binary mergers, and sort of other phenomena using uh, general relativistic magnetohydrodynamics or GRMHD for short. I don't want to keep saying it. I, it's just... And I, I know I sound fun at parties, but it, it's just a tongue twister. So, <laughs> right. GRMHD. Uh, obviously, there's a lot that goes into sort of that field. There's general relativity, and then there's sort of the uh, we have you know magnetostatics and, and Maxwell's equations, and then you know all, all, anything to do with fluid dynamics, and then magnetized fluid dynamics, of course. What uh, what sort of the, the balance that you have to strike? How how much of of your simulations are general relativity, how much are sort of ionized, the study of ionized gases and, and so on? What's the what's the balance sort of? Yeah, that, that is a great question. Thank you. Um, so the answer is that essentially everything is highly coupled. So um, so essentially all the sim in, in, in the simulations that we do, um, all the different fundamental forces, um, if you want, so gravity, um, um, electrodynamics um, um, they are sort of fully um, fully coupled in, in this in, in, in this case so um, as, as you mentioned we couple uh, gravity so Einstein's equations to the Maxwell's equations um, and we also couple them to the fluid um, uh, to the plasma equations and and all of that taken together is uh, GR MHD um, uh, you can sort of mathematically think of this as a you know a system of you know um, a lot, many, many sort of partial differential equations that need to be solved simultaneously in a numerical fashion. So you have to put that on a supercomputer um, and then, you know, solve it for specific initial conditions. And so the initial conditions we're interested in are mergers of neutron stars and, and, and black holes. And so, 
um, it's it's very hard to separate some of the effects, right? So just to separate out gravity or just to separate out um, electro um, um, electrodynamics or just you know pure pure plasma and motion. Um, although there's some phenomena, you know, where one of the, one of those uh, three, you know, might be the dominating, um, you know, ingredient or the dominating um, effect. So, so clearly for gravitational waves, you know, um, th these days we talk a lot about multi-messenger um, astronomy. It's another, uh, you know, shiny term. Um, so because these these sources are really multi-messenger sources in the sense that we can observe them in gravitational waves, but also with, uh, you know, light with uh, um, essentially electromagnetic radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum and in principle we can also observe neutrinos so particles from these um, from these collisions so um, that's uh, hence the name multi-messenger um, and so for gravitational waves for example gravity obviously is the main is the main ingredient um, so it's really the 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 spiral of, of compact objects that creates these gravitational waves. So gravity here is, is clearly the dominant um, contributor. And then in, if we talk about electromagnetic observations that is interesting to sort of, you know, classical conventional astronomy, uh, then clearly sort of the Maxwell part is, is and, the, and the, the plasma part is, is very important uh, because that is essentially in the end what creates um, um, observable radiation. So if we talk about um, if we want to understand, for example, how these gamma ray bursts, these flashes of gamma rays are created in such events, or how the kilonova emission comes about, then we have to talk about um, uh, plasma physics, nuclear physics, and um, and electrodynamics um, in sort of a given space-time that's described by, by gravity. Right. Um, and s sort of in, in, in that framework of... of, of in that framework of, of combining gravity and sort of sort of visible radiation, um, I, I wanted to ask you about a phenomena that you talked about in a few of your papers about the turbulence that you observe in accretion disks. Mm -hmm. And um, w from what I understand, when ionized gases um, are uh, are exposed to a gravitational field, there is no mass dependence, so we don't have to worry about drift. For particles or, or anything like that from what i understand i may be wrong um and you talk about sort of this idea of magneto rotational instability so i, I just kind of wanted to know if, if it's not something from particle drift uh what causes this instability is it particle collisions is it sort of changes in flux changes in gravitational sort of pull and wave i i these are all terminologies that are above my pay grade so you, you need to correct me of course but, but, but what, what causes these instabilities mainly yeah, uh, another great question. So it's um, so the, and this is a process where again, sort of uh, uh, plasma physics and and in particular electrodynamics is, is is very important and is the the central ingredient. So here gravity just acts sort of um, as uh, setting a background space time, a, a gravitational potential in which um, all of this happens. Um, so in an, in an accretion disk, um, say an accretion flow um, around a black hole, for example, um, typically if there were um, if there were no if there was no fluid viscosity um, and uh, um, if there was essentially uh, let's let's start and, and and think about just a pure vacuum, right? And you we just put a test particle in there in that space time, then this test particle will just orbit the black hole at a fixed radius. Um, if we prepare, you know, initial conditions such that, you know, we, we could bring it on a, on a circular orbit or so. So it's, it's pretty much like a planet orbiting 
um, a central um, a central object, right? Um, now the accretion disk is is like um, is is plasma in the in the collision regime or mostly in the collision regime, meaning that we have tons of these <laughs> essentially uh, fluid elements or you know uh, test particles if you want, um, and and um, and and they form a hydrodynamic system. So they they exert pressure. Uh, they um, uh, so they have a temperature. They have a pressure um, and and a density distribution. So we have an actual plasma flow. Um, where individual gas um, elements are essentially in, in, in continuous um, collisional exchange with uh, with uh, each other, and on top of that, um, since uh, this plasma is highly ionized, um, uh, we have tons of charges in this plasma flow. And in fact, uh, typically these these astrophysical plasmas of this kind are um, perfect conductors, um, essentially. So um, we have uh, almost an infinite conductivity. And this is what defines this limit of ideal MHD, essentially um, ideal magnetohydrodynamics, um, where we think of a of a of a highly conductive plasma, essentially infinite conductivity. Um, and so, those charges uh, create electric and magnetic fields. So that's kind of an inevitable consequence. Um, and it turns out that these, uh, um, you know, um, uh, electric and magnetic fields back react onto the plasma flow through, you know, the Lorentz force and, and so on. So they influence each other, and so there's a nonlinear sort of feedback here. Um, and uh, so it turns out that in these disks, um, since they are what we call differentially rotating, meaning that uh, you know, uh, plasma that is closer to the black hole orbits the black hole at a faster speed um, than uh, material that is further away from the black hole. Um, so there's sort of some uh, some shear. Essentially, there's some shear motion, if you want. Um, and in this in this context of differential rotation, um, magnetic fields couple couple these fluid elements to each other. Um, and what really happens here is that the the tension of the magnetic field um, acts like a spring between between fluid elements, neighboring fluid elements that rotate at slightly different speeds, um, and that leads to an, an a transfer of angular momentum between the fluid elements um, in such a way that um, that it actually leads to an to an instability, um, uh, to a runaway to a runaway instability that um, uh, in the end effectively um, amplifies the magnetic field strength. Um, and so this this local sort of MRI or magnetorotational instability can be essentially thought of essentially as um, a way to uh, generate magnetic field strength um, um, essentially out of nothing, just um, converting rotational energy in such a differentially rotating plasma into magnetic field strength, into magnetic fields. Um, and um, and um, and um, uh, sort of as a consequence of this, uh, as I mentioned, there's um, transport of angular momentum, which forces material that is closer to the black hole to even, you know, fall in, uh, sort of to, to move even closer to the black hole. Um, and so there's a, uh, while material on the outer parts of the disk will eventually sort of be uh, driven outwards due to uh, angular momentum conservation. And so the disk essentially starts to spread because of this um, instability. Um, and actually leads to what we call accretion onto the black hole. So the gas will not just orbit on 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 a on a circular orbit uh, forever, but it will actually start to fall into the black hole and to what we call accrete onto the black hole. So it's really this plasma instability 
that um, that uh, we think generates accretion in astrophysical um, systems, and 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 that's across many many scales from like small accretion disks as we would have it like around a stellar mass black hole after the collision of you know a neutron star and a black hole or two neutron stars that that form the black hole in in these in these gravitational wave uh, um, systems. Um, but also at the centers of galaxies, uh, so AGNs, so active galactic nuclei, and 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 blazars. Um, maybe you you've heard about such systems where we have accretion disks on 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 a, on a huge scale. Um, and so we think that kind of this this effect is sort of this this magneto rotational instability is is quite universal in the sense that it is it it leads to accretion in 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 all these kind of systems. That's very interesting. And, and it's actually incredible that you talked about how it, it, it kind of acts as a perfect conductor. Because I, I was about to ask you about how you kind of deal with a, sort of, um, how do I say this, uh, unideal conditions for when you run simulations. But I guess you don't really have that problem. That um, is correct. <laughs> at, at, at least not with, uh, with this aspect. But that's really incredible. I, I'm going to have to re-listen to that and, and reflect on that because I was quite... Uh, that was quite interesting. I'm going to have to check that again. But but I, just to follow up, so sorry for, for interrupting, since, since you mentioned no, no, the, the non-ideal non conditions. Um, so there are, in fact, some systems where non-ideal um, effects uh, start to play a role, and that is uh, typically in, in protoplanetary disks. So the disks out of which um, planets form um, around a mm -hmm. newly formed uh, star. Um, and there, um, the temperature can cool down uh, significantly, so that the plasma actually um, starts to um, recombine, and so it's losing will lose charges, and so a perfect conductivity may break down, and then we're in the limit of um, you know we have to take non-ideal effects into account, and that is also an active research area in in astrophysics to sort of ex uh, even further sort of expand the the number of equations you need to solve with ideal MHD to include some of these non-ideal effects. And, and so, yeah, that's a very active research topic. And that, that's the only reason why I wanted to, to, to mention it here uh, real quick. Right. And, and, and is that at the point where you just kind of hand things over to the planetary scientists and let them deal with it or? or uh... Right, right, right. So, I, I mean, at this stage, for, for sure, for, for me, for, for now, um, um, of course, because they have so many other important problems to solve <laughs> in, in, uh, for, for neutron star systems. Um, uh, but obviously, it's it's a, it's a topic that I'm that I'm interested in and that I'm that I'm following. But um, yeah, I'll, for now, I'll leave it to the planetary uh, scientists to do it. <laughs> awesome. And uh, I guess sort of the last uh, thing I wanted to ask you about this topic, um, just before we wrap up, um, you mentioned sort of the simulations that you run. I just kind of wanted to ask you about the the software and, and hardware that you that you use. You don't have to go in detail, of course, but you're you're probably not using run-of-the-mill Java and C++ to do these kinds of things. I, I just wanted to know what uh, what kind of tools you use to, to study these, you know, everything from your collisions to accretion disks to, you know, your planetary models and so on. Right. Yeah, thanks for the question. So this is, um, so as I mentioned, uh, we can only we can only simulate these systems using supercomputers. Um, yeah. So essentially, um, um, computer is the size of a, of a huge building. Um, right. So, and maybe you've heard about the Niagara cluster, for example, that, that is um, in Toronto. Um, so the, the biggest Canadian uh, supercomputer, which uh, I'm also uh, running, running on. Uh, 
excuse me. Um, we also have like a small cluster at, at Primita Institute. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we also hope to have uh, soon a small cluster in, in, in Guelph at the university as well uh, to run on. And so these are um, so-called um, uh, HPC systems or high performance computing systems where we try to distribute um, the um, uh, sort of the computational tasks among a huge number of individual nodes, uh, which consist of uh, usually something like two processors, so a few processors um, that each contain, um, that each come with a certain number of cores um, of individual CPUs. Um, so typically there's something like 40, um, uh, something like uh, 40 CPUs per, per node or so. And, you know, we typically run on several thousand um, cores at, 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 at any given time. And um, so all these nodes are, uh, um, connected via what you call InfiniBand, so very fast communication, which we actually need for these hydrodynamic uh, simulations to solve. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of languages, what we what we uh, what we use here are uh, the so-called high-performance computing languages, which is uh, in fact C++ um, and uh, and C um, uh, okay. and uh, also you know some some older parts of the code uh, still have Fortran, uh, still come in in, in Fortran. Um, so it's, it's a mixture usually of, of, of many, uh, you know, of these uh, three different languages um, in any combination. Um, and, uh, and, and so that constitutes usually the, um, the actual evolution code or the, the code with which we, you know, solve these complicated sets of uh, partial differential equations for, for given initial data. Um, and so then on, on the on the post-processing level, so once we've actually run the simulation and once we sort of calculated a solution to this, um, and so we kind of simulated the collision in, in, a, in a supercomputer, uh, then we have to actually dig out and sort of we have to dig into the data and dig out some of the physics that we're interested in. Um, and this is what we call post-processing. Um, and so this is mostly um, based on, you know, interpreted languages like Python or, you know, Julia is now becoming um, um, increasingly um, um, uh, interesting to, to many people. So uh, something something along these lines, where we have sort of fairly sophisticated um, libraries and post-processing software written, you know, over many years to to actually um, deal with all the big data sets and to dig out some of the physics that's that's sort of um, hidden in there. Right, and, and I I guess sort of the um, with regards to the Fortran, it's sort of one of those situations where. It, updating the software would or, or sorry updating the 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 software wouldn't coincide with the hardware kind of like how the hubble telescope can't update its computers because then the whole system would have to change and they would have to kind of renew <laughs> yeah that, that's that's uh, yeah that's an interesting thought um it's yeah it's kind of like this um so so i have to say that um the codes that we are using are some of the most complex codes that you can find in cosmology and you know computational cosmology and astrophysics these days. These are codes right. that have been developed by um, not just a single person, but by you know by many people, many collaborators over um, sometimes over decades. Um, right. And so there's a long history to that code. Um, okay. And so there's many authors and. Um, so usually, you know, things work well, and there is no immediate, you know, to replace them, then, um, you know, uh, it's just uh, sort of laziness or say, uh, a lack of focus, or say, um, we just put the focus somewhere else, right on the sort of more exciting things, which means to, you know, discover new things and to add new capabilities to the code. 
rather than uh, replacing all, old parts as long as they still run fine, right? So, so this is mostly a sociological and you know a problem um, and uh, you know uh, historically contingent problem. Um. And 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 uh, right, and and an element of common sense. Don't don't fix what isn't broken, I guess. And you know, right, right. Don't don't change what what works. Um, and it obviously yeah. has brought you and, great and so results the, the hardware well. So, is, so you know, um, as but that's long one, as it runs on the on the hardware, um, we we usually we usually don't uh, um, replace it. So th there's this Hubble component to it uh, that you mentioned, um, namely that um, you know at some point uh, maybe you want to port your code to a GPU or so, and then you know the old Fortran code is not you know you 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 can't use that anymore. Um, but unless things right. like this happen, that that uh, so as long as we can run that old Fortran code on 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 you know current uh, CPU architectures, then we, we would still do it. Awesome, awesome. Um, so we're gonna wrap up soon. We're approaching fifty minutes, um, and this has been fifty minutes of brain food for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people listening as well. So thank you very much. Um, but before we go, I just wanted to know about what what future projects you'll be participating in and, and what sort of what, what what's next for you um, as you continue on with your research and your work? Right. Yeah, that, that is a great question. Um, so there's there's many fronts on of, uh, um, you know, on, on where to work on and, and, and where to go. I think, as I mentioned um, earlier, um, it's really a booming field. Um, there's a lot of momentum now and there's um, a lot of things to be discovered. Uh, there's lots of low-hanging fruits, but also um, sort of more distant goals uh, to, to work toward in, in, in the next couple of years. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, very exciting science that can be that can be done. Um, I think one one development that I'm that I'm very excited about is that um, essentially um, and that connects to this kilonova and uh, and heavy um, uh, sort of heavy nuclei theme that we discussed earlier is that uh, we realize that um, there are other astrophysical systems that uh, may actually be um, um, a very major contributor to, to producing heavy elements um, so that it's not just neutron star mergers, which is essentially what we thought in you know, 2017 um, and thereafter, where we had you know, direct confirmation, observational confirmation that such systems can actually produce heavy elements and produce this kilonova emission. Uh, we've we've realized that there are there there may be other astrophysical systems who um, which, which can do essentially a similar thing, um, and so we've we've had an um, interesting idea about uh, so-called collapse stars, so uh, collapsing, rapidly rotating massive stars that that collapse at the end of their lives and and actually produce uh, again such an accretion disk around a black hole and uh, that leads to the formation of of heavy elements. Um, and so there's um, sort of lots of uh, of unsolved issues and problems and open questions there. Um, so and it sort of speaks all to this broader question of really how does the universe create um, a good fraction of the periodic table, a very basic, a very fundamental question uh, in, in physics. Um, and so it's it's these are really exciting times where we can learn from these multi-messenger observations, but also from astrophysical modeling, from theoretical modeling, uh, numerical modeling, as, as we do. Um, in the future to see um, which systems actually contribute at which level to forming the periodic table. Uh, so neutron star mergers versus collapsars or, or other sources. Um, and so uh, we also hope to learn from that how galaxies actually chemically assemble. And so we may actually, um, um, you know, learn more about um, how galaxies evolve, um, uh, chemically evolve in particular. 
Um, and so there's all sorts of, of sort of broader questions that, that connect to this um, and that I really look forward to sort of exploring over the next couple of years. I, I guess one of the great things is uh, w when your job entails studying the universe, you'll never run out of work. So you have uh, you have great job security. I, I'm, I'm quite envious. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's, a, there's um, endless problems, I can guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, dealing with my my terribly offbeat jokes. I am running on two hours of sleep, um, and you've been a great guest. So thank you for, for working with me and, and answering my questions. Really appreciate it. Can you please let our listeners know where you know where they can read more about you and uh, and your work and your research? Sure, of course. Yeah, and so first of all, th thanks a lot for the invitation. It was really great. I very much enjoyed our uh, chat here on the on the podcast, and I appreciate also sure. your taking the time during all the exams and the and the busy time that that, that you have as as, as well um, at the end of the semester. Um, would, would rather be would rather be doing this. Trust me, it's right. <laughs> it's not a huge trade off. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah. So th thanks, thanks, um, uh, thanks a lot for, for for the invitation. It was great to be here. Um, and so, if people are, uh, if the listeners are more uh, interested in hearing more about uh, sort of what uh, I work on, what sort of our group works on. I definitely can recommend going to, to our um, faculty web pages. Uh, you'll find you know papers on there. Um, there uh, there's some selected papers that I can um, suggest. Um, there's uh, there are also some new stories about these collapsars and heavy elements that you'll find on the on the on the Guelph website actually. Um, if you if you Google my name and uh, nuclear synthesis or something like that, you'll 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 find that um, or collapsars and Guelph or so. Uh, <laughs> you'll you'll find some of that. Um, um, it, it's out there. There are some some actually good uh, uh, new stories about. Um, about the formation of heavy elements and kilonovi and some of these these phenomena. Incredible, incredible. And, and otherwise, uh, I'm also happy to, to answer questions via email or so. If people are interested to, and want some suggestions for reading or so, I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, be in touch with email as well. That's that's great. Thank you for your transparency. Um, and and yeah, I guess on that note, Dr. Siegel, Daniel, of course. Sorry. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Thank you so much. This episode of Griffins and Gluons was brought to you by the Physics and Astronomy Club at the University of Guelph. Stay tuned on our Instagram and Discord to hear more about our events and fundraisers that will be happening all throughout this semester and next semester. Follow our Instagram at UOGPAC, that is UOGPAC, and our Discord UOFGPAC, that is UOF. G-P-A-C. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you in the next one. Take care.